Right. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Phil Illy and Shannon Trace. I met both of you last weekend in Denver at the GenSpec conference, which was really nice. I didn't have a, a chance to talk with either of you for very long, but I talked with both of you while we were there. And Shannon, I have a copy of your book here. 18 months, you said you're doing a cover redesign, but this is the book and you right. are a trans widow. Yes. And I really enjoyed your speech at the conference and look forward to reading this and talking with you more. We had already talked about doing that. Um, and Phil, you have a book as well. I haven't read it. I don't have a copy yeah. of it. Do you have a copy you can hold up? This is bad boy. Yeah. Uh, nice. And, yeah. and you and I spoke, I think it was just maybe really kind of once for about a little while, maybe 15 minutes or so. And I really enjoyed talking with you, but we didn't get into the topic at hand very much. We just kind of had a, a, a nice a chat about, you know, hi and hello and yeah, yeah. getting acquainted. Um, and since the conference, there's been this fervor that's erupted around a picture of you at the conference. And it's mm -hmm. really, it's interesting. I was just saying to y'all before we came on, before we hit record, I haven't been in social media circles very long. And so this kind of mobbing behavior, I had always kind of just associated with this woke cancel culture, but seeing it crop up over a topic that I was, that I'm more closely involved with has been really interesting to watch it manifest. And I had a conversation with Pamela Garfield Yeager, who was also at the conference. And we did a recording about this a couple of days ago. And I watched as my channel blew up with negative comments, even from people who've been longtime supportive commenters. So it's a really interesting thing to find yourself in the middle of. And I feel like there's got to be a way to have more civil discussions than that. Yeah, I think it's um, a natural outgrowth of just what social media does. It lets everyone talk to each other and interact with everyone, which is not evolutionarily or historically ever been possible before. And it appears that once everyone can talk to everyone, it leads to a lot of conflict. Yeah, it does seem like it's a, it's a unique phenomenon. There's a few things that the the feminists have been saying that are, are I guess I'm and I'm maybe I shouldn't say the feminists. That's that's what this group of people has been called by people who are lashing back. So there's this lash and this backlash. So there's been a few complaints that are in these uh, that are in the the comments quite a bit about your presence at the conference, mm -hmm. and I I feel like they're missing part of the picture when they're doing this they're kind of using you as a, a representative for a lot of frustration and that maybe if we could have a nuanced conversation um that we could maybe take some of the fervor out of it but i don't know if that's possible maybe it just has to burn itself out but um i'm just delighted that the two of you are willing to have a chat today so thank you for joining me yeah, yeah. thank so, you for having us Shannon, do you want to you want to give a little bit of your thoughts and what's been your impression of of the conference and what's been happening since? Yeah, so I thought the conference was really really great. I mean, there were so many inspiring speakers and there were so many uh really really insightful and you know, interesting things said and statistics and just facts and just it was just a great great conference. And so I was a little frustrated to see that this tweet had kind of taken off in a way that was overshadowing the other great things that happened at the conference. 
And yeah, I guess I, um, one of the things I was really frustrated by was that I saw a number of tweets from people who were saying, um, Phil shouldn't have been present or shouldn't have been dressed this way because think of the trans widows. Have Has Ginspect even spoken to any trans widows? The poor trans widows. <laughs> and so I, I kind of had to step up and go, hey, I am a trans widow. I was spoken to by Ginspect. I was platformed. I was given a chance to talk and I did not feel victimized by Phil's presence. And I don't like that characterization. Um, and I, I don't want to support that. So that's where I kind of jumped in and got involved a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That, the that is a, one of the main points that's been made is that this was a place where there were vulnerable people and that it was inappropriate or that, uh, yeah. So that's a, that's a really good point to address. And Phil, what about you? What's your impression? What was your impression of the conference and what, what are your yeah. thoughts about what's going on now? And are um, you wearing the infamous dress right now? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's usually uh that outfit that people were mad about is like currently one of the ones that's in my, like, I, I just rotate through a few outfits just out of laziness with like, I don't like to use decision-making energy on what am I going to wear today? So I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna wear this color today. And then, yeah. Well, you did um, say you love blue. Yeah, no, most most days I wear blue. Um, and yeah, except on laundry day when I'm cleaning the blues I like and then, you know, wear other things. But um, yeah, the conference was really fun. It was like, it felt like the first chance for a lot of people that have been following the gender discourse and transgender discourse for years to actually get to meet in real life. And there was like this energetic energy um, there was a feeling of like possibility of what the people working together could accomplish. Um, it was overall very positive and, th and the social vibes there were very chill. It's like not at all what the sort of weird thing that's happening on Twitter right now. The conference mm -hmm. was not at all <laughs> anything like that. And so yeah, I understand if the Genspect organizers are upset by that after putting in all that hard work and running a pretty good conference that there's this stupid argument taking up all the oxygen in the discussion mm -hmm. and um i i think i want to mention that like why i think like we could even get to this place and of this this twitter mobbing over like there being a literal autogonophile wearing a dress in public um is basically like the, the trans movement does not want to talk about autogonophilia right mm -hmm. and so they they basically abstain from discourse around it except to say that it's not real it's fake it's transphobic yada yada and on the other hand, the gender criticals and the rad femmes, like that sort of like general milieu, they, you know, they don't like the impacts that that orientation is having in terms of like how it is behind gender, the gender ideology that they critique. And they reasonably fear that it's like females like fighting for their like own sex and, you know, having this ideology rise up that then prioritizes gender over sex is kind of a threat to their concerns. Um, but the the feminists also a lot of times they they really demonize it and mischaracterize the orientation like what it is how it feels um it's what, basically the stuff they've been saying about me doesn't hasn't really been bothering me because they're so off base with like their understanding of the orientation and also how it feels firsthand that they're basically describing something that is not real and so it like doesn't bug me um and yeah, you basically have these two sides that have like created their own ideas about what autogynophilia is and completely siloed off from each other and created both 
two really extreme ways of portraying it that are completely incompatible and like neither of them like like someone like me that's just trying to be like hey here's what it actually is i read a lot of the science and like here's my best attempt at describing it like they don't like that yeah and i if, if i could add to that i agree that it is misunderstood and um as a person who was married to someone who very much fit that description of an autogynophile um it's a medical disorder it's a complex issue it's not a uh, simple fetishism or um something like that and i think my frustration is um if you're going to use the word like why are you why are you a person who thinks it doesn't exist or that it's something completely different from what it is like maybe you shouldn't use the word if you're if you're not if you don't agree with the definition of the word and so yeah, it's just kind of frustrating for me as well, because when I was married to my ex-husband, Jamie, I couldn't figure out why cross-dressing should impact his life to the degree that it did and why it should interfere with our relationship and interfere with our intimacy and really change his personality. Like to me, whether somebody wants to express themselves through clothing, that shouldn't have done that. Or even whether someone had a kink, that shouldn't have done that either. I've been with people who had a kink and most people can integrate a kink into their lives without a lot of disruption. But then I read Ann Lawrence's paper, Becoming What We Love. And, um, and Ann Lawrence is a, uh, right. Um, an autogynophile and a person, a sexologist and psychiatrist who interviews autogynophiles. And so this is a person who has both firsthand knowledge and tons of research. And when I read that, a light bulb came on in my head and I saw this is what's happening. This is not a simple fetish. This is a complicated thing. It is more like an orientation. I see people getting upset about that word. Um, you know, words aren't perfect, but it leans more toward orientation than toward fetish. And so I just, I guess, wish that people, if they're going to take up pitchforks and debate about it, at least know what it is they're talking about. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. I wish people would know what they're talking about. And I like I can understand why they're getting upset about the word orientation for it, because the, the same sex attraction rights movement has used that term to help destigmatize their sexuality. And so then, you know, basically, with the argument that like, hey, it's just someone's sexual orientation, they're allowed to have a different sexual orientation. Um, but there's so there's like this moralistic aspect to whether something is classified as a as a, a fetish or an orientation. But um, after learning a bunch about sexual orientation through the process of learning about autogynophilia and writing my book, I realized that sexual orientation just has like a general form that it makes you attracted usually to a certain thing. It makes you want to get closer to that thing and be in union with that thing. And it, you'll people will generally build their lives in ways that accommodate that union. And it doesn't matter like the specific type of thing someone is into in terms of the the inner psychology of it. Um, and, and that inner psychology is a completely separate question of like, what morally is permissible in society? Like these are completely separate conversations, but people don't like using the word orientation because they think it, it means that we have to like uh, extend all the same like considerations to like say like autogynophilia or autoandrophilia that we extended to same sex attracted people.
Mm-hmm. There's a lo- reluctance to legitimize it in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a, and uh, please help me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's sort of a, like a sexual orientation slash paraphilic or whatever, however you want to characterize that. There's that category that you're talking about, orientation versus fetish. Mm-hmm. But there's also sort of a lifestyle component as well. Like a, you, I, I didn't get the, one of the biggest things that keeps going around in criticism, one of the biggest criticisms is he's acting out his fetish on the women who are present. And I, I wanted to uh, clarify, it seems like you just kind of like to dress the way you like to dress and that that's not necessarily, or how, how would you, how would you describe that? Is there a separate component to that? Um, Yeah, I'm not really, a lot of commenters were acting as if because I'm wearing a dress, I'm just like rock hard and aroused 24 seven. And it's like, that's not, it's literally not how it works. Um, You know, if you just think of conventional pair bonding, when like a married couple is together they're not like continually aroused by the other's presence but like they're glad they're there when mm-hmm. when they notice them you know mm-hmm. you know if things are going well and so it's it's a lot of people assuming that just because something is ultimately rooted in sexuality that therefore it entails being aroused every single time all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things that was going around was this, this, um, I was reading a lot of comments that you were wearing fetish gear. And that, you <laughs> that had, phrase, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and I, I just yeah. thought, well, it's, it was kind of a normal looking dress to me. I, I didn't really see that. But, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem like and it, and from interacting with you, you seem like just a, a, a person who is having normal interactions with people happens to be wearing a dress, you also happen to be wearing athletic socks. And it was kind of a sporty hipster outfit overall was kind of my impression. It's, it's but... comfortable. Like I, I like stuff that's comfortable. I like put on my clothes in the morning and then I go do stuff like it's normal for me at this point. What about the um, and it's interesting, Shannon, what you mentioned, you wouldn't have thought that as your your ex got into um cross-dressing and transvestitism and autogyne he became came out as an autogynophile that also his personality changed in a in a lot of ways that made this all encompassing and there's this charge that autogynophiles are grooming kids and do you see that as a does that make sense to you how does that make sense to you well i i think that men can have more than one issue right and and i think that's where you know when people talk about, people confuse autogynophiles with transvestic fetishists. That's not the same thing. I do think there might be people where that overlaps, like maybe that shop teacher with the big prosthetic boobs. Um, And again, maybe, you know, there are, there are certainly transgender activists and queer theorists who seem to be reading, if not promoting, the views of Judith Butler and Michelle Foucault, who have argued in favor of pedophilia. Um, so I think that there's a lot of things all getting convoluted here. Um, but autogynophilia in and of itself, it's to me, it's a it's a medical issue. And it's a, it's a very strange, uh, inwardly focused, again, very similar to an orientation. It's um, it's a, a man's uh, desire for himself as a woman and his love of himself as a woman. And 
it's so it's so orientational that it takes over other orientations. So if the man is heterosexual, he doesn't necessarily he he loses interest in other women because the orientation is inward. It's toward himself. This is how Blanchard described it. This is how Ian Lawrence described it. I think one interesting thing about this idea of acting out a fetish on unsuspecting people nearby is that, first of all, this is just something that just arose in activist circles. There's there's no mention of anything like that anywhere in Blanchard's work, Lawrence's work, anywhere. It's something that I kind of saw arise and just take off like a meme, something that people like to repeat because it just, I don't know, it resonates with them. They don't understand. They like to get enraged. You know, I don't know. Um, so first of all, there's no, there's no relationship between that view and autogynephilia necessarily. And the other thing is that it would be my impression that an autogynephile of all people would be the last person who is looking at you and involving you in his fetish because he's way too focused on himself. And I think for all of the faults, you know, I get accused of defending autogynephilia. I don't, I'm not defending it. I think that it's very bad and corrosive for a relationship. And ironically, I think it's it's worse for a relationship than a fetish because it is um, very inwardly focused and very all-consuming and just doesn't leave room for other people. So one of the ironic things about this is that not only do I not think this is how this works, but it seems like of all the various... Uh, sexual paraphilic men walking around this might be the last one who's staring at you trying to draw you into a fetish yeah i mean uh, your logic sounds right to me like it's, i know that that's definitely not what i was trying to do i i wasn't even like i said even like thinking about my outfit it's just one i usually wear and i was just glad to be meeting people at the conference and talking about the gender stuff with all the other gender rebels you know because it's not there's not a lot of places to do that and something you you mentioned about how it's like how autogynophilia can be you know lead to personality changes or be all consuming that i i feel i want to mention and also that you mentioned how it's like a medical issue um i think my understanding of it is that you have a sexual orientation that makes you attracted to being this thing makes you get attached to being this thing or being like this thing and then over time, it changes your self-perception, your narrative identity of who you are, and it shifts you across the gender divide in in self in um, self-perception until like sometimes eventually you end up seeing yourself as literally a woman. And you know sometimes people don't go that far and they're just like I'm non-binary or whatever. But um, I I think it's helpful to differentiate between like the orientation and its possible downstream effects of like whether that means like medicalization or it becoming a medical issue because um, there's plenty of people that have the orientation where it doesn't become a medical issue. That's just like a possibility. Bill, I listened to your interview. I listened to the second one you did with Benjamin and I listened to the one that you did on heterodorks. And it sounds like you've put a lot, you've done a lot of research and you take a really intellectual view of this and try to really understand it. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I think is being lost in this in this um, particular moment is that it, it this in the scope of our culture, 
this transgender emergence, the way that we are thinking of it now is relatively new. And there's still, I think, an incomplete understanding of what exactly is happening that's caused this to increase. And so here you are with some theories and your theory is that autogynephilia or, or auto heterosexuality, as you call it, because you apply this to both uh, males and yeah, females. Yeah, I think females can have autoandrophilia. Okay. Yeah. And you're saying that it's, you, you believe that this is a, at the root of a lot of gender dysphoria or gender, um, the gender issues that we're seeing right now, transgenderism. Yeah, I think it's the most common cause of gender dysphoria. Um, because it, it kind of, once you understand it, it intuitively makes sense that if you have something that routes the majority of your, there's your sexuality, and capacity for romantic attachment towards something, and you can't be that thing, it would be immensely frustrating, like a form of unrequited love, or like, you know, there'd be the sort of dissatisfaction that comes with people that have trouble finding sexual partners in general. And so it, it has really big impacts on people's mood and well being. And, you know, also, since it's about the self, it impacts their identity. So it's kind of extra powerful in that respect. I, I heard you also talk when you were on heterodorks about autism and your, your autism. And I'm wondering how does autogynephilia relate to autism? And also how does it relate to porn use? Because I'm wondering if the hyper focus on sexuality, do you think that there's a connection there between that and developing an auto heterosexual orientation? No, I think um, the orient, I think it's almost entirely an inborn thing. And how a person, the actions they take in their life can shift um, how their gender issues develop, but the the predisposition towards being attracted to being a woman um, is something that's inborn. It's it's arisen across generations, across cultures, and, you know, basically almost all the cultures are against it. It's only like very recently that we have, you know, Western culture people starting to be like somewhat okay with it. But like it, it arises even though it goes against most cultural like norms and causes people a lot of difficulty. And so, yeah, I think it's just mostly a, an inborn thing. And as far as I could tell, it seems to, I suspect that um, autism is like autistic people are more likely to have this. And, you know, part of that is the overlap between you know, the trans population and the autist population, like people that are autistic are more likely to be trans and people that are trans are more likely to be autistic. And also that um, in one study I can recall, at least there's um, about autism and, and transsexualism. It was specifically the later onset patients in this, this gender clinic that had elevated rates of autism, and, you know, which would suggest to me the late onset one is generally the autosexual one because because mm. um, there's the homosexual type that generally is more apparent earlier as a child. And it's part of like a developmental stage that like hopefully they grow past. And whereas the autosexual one it is it's been present, although often latent and not observable, but then puberty strikes and it comes to the forefront. And so, yeah, the basically it seems like the late onset slash like the non-homosexual type of transgenderism, that one seems to be connected with autism in some way hmm. and like i have um I, I have a sort of speculation about why that is which is that you know related to blanchard's theory of the erotic target location error theory that there's a there's an aspect of sexual orientation that's about whether you're sexually attracted externally versus internally hmm. and 
if you like look at the word autism, the ought in front stands for self. Like it, it reflects a general turn inward. And so if that were to happen with someone's with the location dimension of someone's sexual orientation, they would get attracted to being whatever it is they love. And so I, I suspect that that's largely responsible for the overlap between um, transgenderism and, and autism. I think that that um, another another connection that makes that seem likely is that my ex-husband was in IT. A lot of these guys are in IT. Uh, obviously, uh, some of the famous, you know, autogynophiles are uh, in tech and are CEOs and and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's true. What I wonder is, and wrapping back in, uh, Phil, your your observation that it doesn't have to be a medical issue. I didn't necessarily mean that every autogynophile medicalizes, but I do think that a orientation that isn't normal, I guess, or at least that uh, precludes normal relationships with other people is a psychological issue. And I kind of also wonder about your belief that it's inborn. And I know I just, I actually refreshed my memory on Ann Lawrence's work right before this um, and looked at it. And Ann Lawrence also thinks that it's, that it's inborn and is there at a young age and comes out at some point. But I find it interesting and odd and a little contradictory to that theory that both my ex-husband and let's say Caitlyn Jenner um, married, had good relationships, had children, had, you know, successful lives. And then, and then this came out in, in midlife and seemed to come out in a way, well, I can only speak from my own experience with my ex-husband seemed to not be necessary. Like it, it seemed to take a trajectory that was facilitated by a lot of different things, including social media and peer pressure and porn. And uh, it, it seems likely or possible at least that, because speaking for my own relationship, my ex-husband and I had a really, really great sex life and a really great intimate life and, and uh, conversational intimacy as well. A really great, we just had a great rapport on every level and we we were very close and then suddenly we weren't. So it seems at least possible that that is also a normal part of him that could have flourished instead and that something diverted that. So I don't know, it just seems that way to me. Yeah, um, I think for a lot of people when it comes out in midlife, it's that they were, whenever the thoughts came up, they they suppressed it and repressed it for a long time. And then eventually once they start um catering to them instead of just blocking them off it, it allows for the possibility of forming that relationship with that you know inner woman so to speak and then there's sort of like a honeymoon period if they really go for it which is you know it i imagine it might not have been so different as, as if like say your husband had like suddenly found another woman and then gotten obsessed with her in terms of like how fast and abrupt the change was i mean i agree that it was probably suppressed at times but what i don't feel as uh confident about is i don't know this idea i guess and, and maybe i'm misreading you but this idea that 
the inward turning sexuality is his true self and that the healthy relationship that he had with me and other women for some 30 years was not his true self or not his healthy self it seems that seems like a healthier i mean i really have no problem with you uh um pursuing that for yourself especially since you're open about it and you're not fooling anybody else and entrapping them into something they don't know they're getting involved with um but i also don't think that that's the healthier route objectively yeah i mean ideally like people wouldn't have to deal with this issue it is it's frustrating for the people that experience it a lot of the times and it's understandably frustrating for the the wives and girlfriends that all of a sudden they kind of lose their partner to to that inner woman um and just to be clear i don't think like that someone's female persona is necessarily their true self um any more than their male persona that they started with is their true self um i tend not to even like think in terms of whether someone has a true self or anything like that it's it's self is like constantly changing and it's subjective and it's kind of an illusion um in terms of i don't know for anyone that has ever taken enough psych psychedelics to have dualism fall apart like you realize that um the idea that you're a self separate from other people is just sort of like a function of consciousness and it's it's mm -hmm. it's a useful function but it's like you're still just atoms around other atoms you know and so yeah i I, I do wish, though, that this orientation was more well known so that, like, I think it's really bad when, when autogun files marry women and don't tell them ahead of time and don't tell them early on in the relationship. Whenever this gets asked in, in the self-aware AGP community, we all, I mean, I personally tell people, like, you should tell this girl that you're on a date with, like, first date or second date, like, at the latest, like, don't waste her time. Women have a limited fertility window. And it's a big lie of omission if you know this about yourself and understand where it can go for you to not tell the woman. It, it, with, it precludes her from making a, a truly informed like ability to consent to being in a relationship with you. Yeah, I think that that sounds like a really big part of what women are responding to when they're upset about autogynephilia is this this experience of the trans widow that that you experience and talk about shannon but what's interesting there is that they are upset about phil who is not wasting any woman's time and who is making it very clear who he is and what he is and um that's where i i don't really understand the vitriol i also just i have trouble with the with the whole notion that we're fragile and that we can't gather as a, as adults and talk about something. And in particular, you know, this um, conference is a, a medical conference or a conference with uh, gender identity as a social issue as well as a medical issue, but it's a conference that's attempting to address this issue and attempting to research and study all the different reasons that might be behind it and all the different aspects of it. And, what people have written about it and what people are saying about it. And I think that bad things thrive in shame. 
and that honesty and truthfulness and bringing things out into the open is always the best course of action. And autogynephilia has been recognized now for decades. It's in the medical literature. It's uh, referred to. I know a lot of trans activists like to say it's debunked. But if you go to PubMed and you type that word in, you'll get thousands of articles, many of them new. And tellingly, they won't be articles about autogynephilia. There'll be articles about other things referring to autogynephilia as if, as if it's a given, just like the same way a biology article might refer to evolution. And so it's uh, it's in the atmosphere. It's in the in the body of literature. And so this idea that we can't talk about it at this conference or even witness it or hear from somebody who's taking a different approach with it. That was just very odd to me. I mean, and people were saying, again, there's vulnerable trans widows there. There's vulnerable detransitioners there. Well, this is not a women's space. It's not a feminist conference. You know, it's a conference about gender identity. And so it it wasn't an inappropriate place for that. I think one of the things that some people were objecting to is is uh, I was reading I, someone put up an excerpt from your book Phil where you leave room for the potential for medical transition of children is that I mean I'm sure there's a more nuanced take around that than what I just said but do you want yeah. to talk to that a little bit the, there's um yeah when that section is just at the very end of my juvenile transsexualism chapter which is it's a very long chapter um I point out that juvenile transsexualism is really experimental and we really don't know what's going to happen and one of the something that's really bad about it is that it's not even being tracked like you're going to have i mean at the very least this should be centrally tracked so that we can find the true rate of success and regret you know to figure out whether it's a viable treatment but so there's i, I worry there's a lot of medical carnage happening now that is not even going to lead to at least gaining knowledge from it, you know. Um, but most of that chapter is devoted to explaining sex hormones um, and gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, you know, the puberty blockers, because it seems to me that it's particularly bad to strip the human body of all sex hormones and that that can lead to systemic uh, dysfunction in particular mitochondrial dysfunction because there's estradiol receptors in mitochondria and mitochondria are the like energy producing organelle in literally all your cells except for red blood cells but they're they're in all of your cells and when, when females have been given um these gnrh analogs they develop a wide variety of side effects and particularly in the energy intensive tissues, you know, like they'll have neurological problems, like develop depression and irritability, like just have a trouble focusing. The, the, most of them report joint pain. Um, like they'll get cracked teeth, like osteoporosis, like basically all, it kind of like can degrade all of their tissues. And um, there hasn't been as much research on giving these to males um because it's usually just for prostate cancer treatment um but because precocious puberty and um gynecological issues like 
fibroid tumors and things like that are are where these drugs are given in women and that's more common in women and so basically most of the chapter is just trying to lay groundwork for showing like puberty blocker monotherapy in particular where you just give puberty blockers to someone but don't give them any type of hormone with it that seems particularly for the human body and it seems particularly bad for females um i it's there's still not as much data on what it does to males and when it comes to the, the issue of youth gender transition like in i separate the trans population with the two sexes and the two ideologies which leads to four different ideological groupings so when talking about trans it's really like there's four things here hmm. and it seems to me that the push for puberty blockers politically is is completely driven by the autogynophilic transsexuals that are older and then in hindsight wish they had transitioned when they were younger like it's primarily driven by them and it's because they want to prevent masculinization and so it seems to me that this they might not even be rel they might not even be helpful to female gender transition at all so it's, it's really like for males like it's then there's the question of like would these be good for the homosexual male to female transsexuals or would be transsexuals and like i'm also less sure about that too because historically a lot of the homosexual gender dysphoria patients they they outgrew it around puberty um so it like it seems to me that the least bad group of or basically the most promising group for the, this you know youth medical transition is specifically autogynophiles and that it shouldn't necessarily be applied to all of the four ideological groups and and since it's the autogynophiles that are pushing it like that's another sign that it's specifically that group that thinks they would benefit hmm. what do but you think I, it's it, it's morally fraught yeah. this this whole issue well you know? the, like it's 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 kind of like yeah is there a way to i mean it, even if and that makes sense that you're you're breaking that down in a way that makes sense i still uh, from what I see, I still don't see that it's worth the risk to people, you know, to false identifying somebody, falsely identifying. What what if you have a false positive and this person really would have grown out of it and would have been able to go on through life with an intact body? But but saying that you, how would you go about identifying who would benefit from that if you if you could hypothetically? Um. Yeah, just to be clear, I don't know that that can be done so far. But if I were, it, it, I would be first figuring out, hey, you have a gender dysphoric patient, which type of gender dysphoria syndrome do they have? Because there's different types. And then if you find out that they have the autosexual type of dysphoria, then you try to determine how, how strong it is. Because um, if it's like incredibly strong, and, and basically if their autosexuality very strongly outweighs their their allosexuality their externally directed sexuality um particularly in males sexual orientation is pretty rigid um in females it, it's a little more fluid so it's again this is an issue where another reason that it might be less risky specifically for autogynophiles to be considering this because their orientation is so rigid um and yeah if i were a clinician i would be just trying to figure out how strong how strongly do they have the orientation and basically how much is their heart set on it? And like, how unlikely is that to change? So Phil, I have a question. Um, 
since you seem to have precluded medical intervention for yourself, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, um, why wouldn't you want these young uh, children, potential autogynophiles, to similarly find a way forward without medicalization? Well, I found out I was autogynophilic at age 31 after like all the masculinization was pretty thoroughly done. It would be this tremendous uphill battle to try to like reasonably approximate a female appearance at this point. And, you know, we all met in person. We know I'm very tall. Like there's, there's, it's kind of hopeless in terms of passing as a transsexual. And so I'm just being realistic about the risk benefit ratio, whereas like it seems like the reward for me is not that high. Whereas like the risk of, you know, potential health complications for like what would be a marginal change in appearance doesn't seem worth it. Mm-hmm. At least so the hormone thought, stuff. So if you thought you could yeah. pass better, you might go ahead. Right. Yeah. It, it's yeah. Like if I had a different skeletal structure, um, I would be making a different decision. It's mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it seems like there and you're you're not do you identify yourself as transgender phil or Um, how do you how do you think of that i mean in terms of like the identity labels i tend to use either like autogynophilic auto heterosexual Mm -hmm. or transvestite um because because people argue about what counts as trans or transgender and Mm -hmm. but no one's going to argue if you say you're a transvestite and (laughs) it's just easier rather than having dumb arguments over what counts as trans Mm-hmm. It seems like you occupy a, a position that would make people that would get people upset with you on both sides of the ideology. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, like right now the sort of the gender critical feminists, they're mad. But the trans movement so far is I they really hmm. trying to ignore it. Like often whenever a, a transsexual encounters my profile on Twitter, they just like block it immediately. Like hmm. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. And so it's going to be swept under the rug until they until they feel that they're forced to act. And at which point they're going to get very mad and start doing a huge uproar. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting place to be um, uh, with people on both sides, w- with there being sides too and it it does seem like you're trying to open up a dialogue around something that's really difficult for people to address yeah it's opening a a new front in like the gender culture war of like right now there's like the radical feminist gender critical camp like they have a big political coalition and then there's um you know the woke transgender ideology camp they have a large coalition but right now there's not really a large community of people that have this orientation and acknowledge reality and are like hey i have this thing and it's okay to be this thing Mm -hmm. um let's talk about things using reality-based terminology um i'm trying to open up that discussion one of the problems seems to be that the medical technology is not uh there's such a high rate of of adverse effects uh, poor surgical results problems with i mean even if even if this is say somebody who's in your position would benefit and you feel like you would benefit from uh feminization it it seems like we're in a place where the medical industry doesn't have a really good options to offer people right now and so 
Um, where do we go from here with people who want, is, is it better to try to help people feel comfortable in their own skin? What do you think about that? Like being, being in your own body and just accepting yourself the way you are with your, the body that you were given. I mean, that, that's, you know, that would be one possible good outcome. I mean, it it's very dependent on the individual. Some people that have this autosexual dysphoria have it so bad that they dissociate from their body and they're not even like mentally in their body as they go about their life. They're like separated from themselves and mm -hmm. sort of just going through the motions in life as a sort of like empty husk or whatever. And so it, it would be cool if people could be encouraged to be in their own bodies and figure out ways of doing that. Um, I don't think it's always possible though. And that's a lot of why the medical stuff seems to help these people because once they start having their body change towards being like the other gender then they can they start actually like feeling like they're becoming real and that they're they're finally living whereas before they weren't and um it's, it's it can be a very uncomfortable thing to be having that experience so there's so, the, oh, go ahead shannon yeah i have a question about that um so i think phil you even alluded to earlier that autogynephilia is a cause of gender dysphoria and like I said, I read a little bit uh, before this, and I think Anne Lawrence or maybe Blanchard also said that the gender dysphoria can arise from the desire to to be the woman and the the that sort of bumping up against the reality of what you really do look like and and how that that discrepancy. So when you talk about it being, I think, uh, a difficult goal to come to peace with your body. It seems to me like this, um, the gender dysphoria is cultivated by obsessing over and, uh, I don't know, ruminating on this orientation or whatever you want to call it or transition or what you look like it seems to me like that it is cultivated and that it could be not cultivated and then if it were not cultivated it wouldn't be so difficult to live in, in peace with your body and one of the reasons why I say that is because my ex-husband again spent a good you know 30 years of his adult life totally at ease in his body as far as anyone could tell and I know you can't read people's minds but he also uh, did a lot of things like grow a very large beard and was kind of proud of it and talked about how not everyone can do that. And, um, you know, he said he wanted to play Santa at the mall and he was kind of a backpacker and kind of bragged about an incident where he went backpacking with some friends and they all got tired before him and that sort of thing. So it, for all intents and purposes, it looked very much to us outsiders, like he was comfortable in his body for that uh, 30, 40 years, whatever that was. I, and with the prevalence of this, of trans identity increasing, it's very hard not to believe that there is some social media influence on this. There's some internet influence, porn influence, uh, all, all sorts of things where it seems to me like pursuing this unrealistic ideal is causing the problem and and that one could 
not go there. I mean, I, I remember one time using this example with my ex-husband. I was like, you know what? If I joined a group uh, of 10 women who got online every day and said, let's think about what's wrong with our noses. I bet you half of us would come out with a nose job at the end of a few weeks, right? I mean, I think that could happen. And we kind of know that that happens. We kind of know that that's an aspect of anorexia and plastic surgery, genetics and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's just, it seems to me like it's cultivated and like it could not be. Yeah. Um, the social, the cultural and technological environment definitely impacts how the orientation plays out. Um, you know, like being having all these people that have these feelings be able to meet online and sort of encourage each other to do more cross-gender embodiment of various forms and to consider themselves to be the other gender that does contribute to the proportion of people who choose to transition and choose to incorporate to a greater degree into their lives. And I think part of why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I think um, for someone that has this orientation, the earlier they understand what it is before they like commit to it a lot, the better chance they have of like making the best decision for their life and guaranteeing like an outcome that is what they truly want. And how does that look in terms of connection to other people? Because that seems like that's one piece that, that is um, really dramatically affected by an auto, auto sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. If, if you want to frame it that way, is that like in Shannon's experience with her husband, they had a very good relationship it sounds like and and then you see him start to change and develop this fixation and it it had this this devastating effect on that connection and i don't know what his ability is to connect to people at this point or if it's more inwardly focused but that seems like that's the direction that this is going according to the theory that you have phil and so what, what about helping people who are oriented inward to orient outward? Do you, do you see any, uh, any, how do you see potential to do that? Um, or is there a desire to do that? Right. Like I, if they have the autosexuality strong enough, there's not really a desire for that. Um, and, and then, yeah, I, I think the sort of like inborn ratio between someone's externally directed attraction versus internally directed attraction i think the ratio between the strength of those is, is fairly constant over one's life and it'll from the outside seemingly waver at various points um for instance like when they first stop repressing they'll all of a sudden get obsessed with that inner woman and have sort of a honeymoon phase um but it's it's very common to see in the narratives that um someone that has this orientation strongly just has trouble connecting to other people um, in terms of romantic relationships. Um, but I've, I've also seen that once someone transitions, you know, and after, you know, gotten over the first few years of honeymoon period with it, that after that, they can have better relationships. Mm. Um, it's, but I don't know if there's any like hard numbers on like how that plays out. What are your thoughts, Shannon? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, on which detail? On the, um, on the connection piece on the, yeah, the, right. the value of human connection and the value of being able to make a pair bond versus yeah. turning inward. 
Yeah, I I feel like that I feel like connection is very important and we know that it's important for like mental health, you know. And I I do have I do have some trouble with that. Yeah, with Phil's uh I don't know, assertion that maybe that's just maybe the inward focus is just how some people are and should be encouraged or or whatever. Um I I guess I feel like I I don't know what it's like to be that person. So I don't know for sure. But I mean, one thing I do know is that my ex-husband did not become happier with that. He was actually fairly popular before. Um, So even though people bring up autism a lot, and even though my ex-husband was in STEM and that kind of thing, he also was very, very popular and um, had a lot of relationships friendships you know exes um and then of course when he transitioned it became more difficult for him to date and he dated other trans people and you know broke up with them a lot and um it just doesn't feel like well he and he also estranged some members of his family because they didn't say the right things to him uh which i is kind of another issue but it feels to me like he fragmented his life more. He he lowered his opportunities. Um, I think sometimes about some of the events we used to go to and how he would have difficulty going to them now, either because, um, you know, backpacking or something requires certain clothing or because maybe it was an event where he would get enough side eye that it's not worth it you know and and so it just looks to me like he made his world smaller Mm. and I do have a hard time I guess believing that that's a that that's an improvement right I'm not making a claim about whether your husband's decision to transition was good or bad for him just because I I I don't I don't know it's hard to say I I guess I'm just saying that like i I'm not sure what the right course of action is to take for each individual. And I think it's just, if we can explain to people what's happening, that they'll make decisions that are better than what is currently being done. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to imply that you were saying anything about my ex-husband. That's just the only example I have to kind of ponder what, like what I wouldn't want to do is say what is, you know, better for you because I don't know, I'm not you. I have not researched autogynephilia much, and this is the first real substantial conversation I've ever had about the topic. So thank you both for for diving into it, at least to the extent that we have. And one of the things that I think that I, I think was being missed in all the uproar about the picture and the conference, this this one aspect of the conference, you being there, is that Phil, you you really are someone who's been thinking about this and trying to raise theories and doing this on an intellectual level and not someone who is trolling the women at the conference, which is seems to right. be the impression that people have. So I appreciate the the conversation very much. And and to sort of come to a close, I wanted to and you know, no, no pun intended, I wanted to talk about clothing, dress code a little bit. I know that's kind of a lighter topic in some ways, in some ways it's not, but I, I feel like there's a very slippery slope if you start to police people's, people's clothing. I mean, there is a, I think there's a very strong and sound argument for, for keeping female spaces, female and male spaces, male, 
but that's not the issue at hand. The issue is a, a, a dress dress code, you know, that, that there's a man who's wearing female garb. But then what do you do if you want to, how do you handle that in a place where you don't have a strict dress code? And can you, it, is that even a question worth raising? It seems like that's a very tricky topic. And that's one of the, the main beefs that we've seen online is, is there's a man wearing a dress. Yeah, I mean, I, I lean towards what you're thinking in terms of being like that. It, it's kind of risky to start policing people's fashion. You know, we can see like where that line of thinking goes, like in the Middle East, where women have to be shrouded completely because that's what the males want. And it's I I I just lean towards being like generally anti-authoritarian and freedom and let liking freedom and letting people make the decisions they make freely as long as it doesn't Im infringe on other people. And it's it's hard for me to see how wearing a particular like female or male typical type of garb really infringes on other people. Like you can think it's bad fashion, but like, should that be against the rules? I'm actually really glad you brought this up because this is one of the things I've been thinking about. I have seen a couple of people uh, out on X uh, say that autogynophiles shouldn't be allowed to dress in this way, but you know, obviously, uh, that gay people can or something like that. And I've seen, I've seen that in the past too. And so I'm like, well, first of all, there's two, there's two problems here. One is how do we identify who we think is allowed to dress this way and who isn't? And then the second problem is actually even bigger, which is when has someone actually cross-dressed? Like, what if a man shows up in a very large necklace? Like, is that cross-dressing? You know, what if he has a large necklace and earrings? And what if like uh, a very uh, heavy metal looking muscular dude, you know, comes with large earrings on, he's going to look less like he's cross-dressed than maybe somebody else's. And what about how Elton John dresses? Is that off, you know, off limits? And I think all of that is obviously problematic. We cannot just say, we know we know it when we see it and we want to ban it and and then of course the other problem with that is that anytime that kind of someone has been appointed moral judge of something like that it's not been good and it's been women and minorities who have suffered so like the salem witch trials you know probably involved a lot of condemning of gender non-conforming women so it's not a precedent we want to set yeah, I, I, can, I agree. Yeah. It does seem like there, and there's a lot of leeway for women to dress in whatever fashion they want and, and much less for, for men. Like a woman could wear something that's very masculine without it being, without it standing out and, and really causing much notice, but a man in a dress is much more noticeable. Right. And, and so like, I think in the spirit of like equality of the sexes, it makes sense to allow males to also have a more extended array of fashion options just because you know like you said women can have them too well and it does seem like it's part of the 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 sort of mantra that women have been pushing for with uh the female erasure that's been happening due to trans or due to gender ideology is dress however you want but don't call yourself a woman and so if you hear that mantra 
And here you have a man who's dressing however he wants and not calling himself a woman. And that's that's raising the same uproar. So I thought that was a really interesting thing to note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it revealed the hypocrisy or like that they don't actually hold that belief. It's really interesting. It's just it's it's fascinating to see the the swell of of strong feelings and the way that they're being expressed. And so it's interesting to notice that from one side or the other, if you think in terms of sides. But I just I I I really value these kind of conversations where you just come together and actually talk about the issues in a civil way. So thank you both so much. And is there anything that we didn't get to that you think is important to say before we close? Um, I guess something I like to mention, because when I I was at the GenSpec conference and talking to parents and stuff, they had never heard of these resources I'm about to mention for doing your own research. Um, If you want, for anyone, if you ever encounter a scientific paper online and it's behind a paywall, you can access it with Sci-Hub. And if you ever want to read a book, you can read it on, download it with Library Genesis. Um, this I use these two websites to research and write my book. And I just wanted to mention that so that people can be empowered to do their own research and not be limited by funds or anything like that. Excellent. That's excellent. And do uh, do the two of you want to mention the names of your books again? Sure. Shannon, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'll have mine right here. It's called 18 Months, a Memoir of a Marriage Lost to Gender Identity, and it's available on Amazon and can be ordered through bookstores as well. Thank you. Okay, yeah. And mine is wrong side. called Autoheterosexual, Attracted to Being the Other Sex. It explains both female autoandrophilia and male autogynophilia. And it also explains a wider array of autosexual orientations and their respective forms of trans identity. So it explains trans species and trans race, all, all the types of trans. And and I did that because people argue over autogynophilia. And I thought it'd be better to just be like, huh, it isn't interesting how this same pattern seems to occur with other things. Maybe, maybe autogynophilia is real. And so, yeah, that's my book. It explains... Um, the most common cause of gender dysphoria. Um, I think it, it's, um, I think it's an important book. You know, obviously every author is going to think that about their book, but um, it it is important because if this is the most common cause of gender dysphoria, then it's important that people understand it so they can suffer less. Well, it, they both sound fascinating, and I would love to read both. And I've got Shannon's right here. So I'll start on that one. But um, thank you both so much for joining me and for having this conversation today. It was really nice to meet you both last week, too. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leslie. Thank it's you. good to talk again, Shannon. Yes, good to see you, Phil. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah. Appreciate it.